here at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. I'm Ed and I've got the full podcast team here today. Um, let's go around everyone. Hi B, how are you? Hi, I'm doing okay. It's been a while. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, <laughs> we're recording this on a lovely sunny day, uh, yeah. which makes the lockdown a little bit less miserable. Um, Rachel, how are you doing? I'm good. I've already been outside in the sun today for a walk, but in the north, so it's still cold, unfortunately. Mm totally get you <laughs> it, is, it is february so you know yeah I mean, you can i think you, you was, the sun tricks so me to be optimistic yeah <laughs> joe how are you doing uh all good here thanks ed yeah okay well uh, without further ado let's get on to spinning alan turing's wheel of fun <laughs> makes a noise and the the game that's been selected by alan turing's wheel of fun today very special uh, uh very special game indeed blind data oh. mm, exciting um so blind data what is it the aim is to choose which mystery person from a selection of three sounds most interesting to grab a coffee with for a friendly non-romantic date <laughs> the contestants could be either gender and are not necessarily single uh, but they are all living people from the worlds of science and technology. Try to hold off with saying who you think the mystery dates are until you've made the decision about who you prefer. And I'll start you off with a description of each mystery date first. Then you'll have the chance to ask one question of each of them, uh, which I'll do my best to answer <laughs> based on my knowledge of uh, the person. Okay, are you, are you ready to play blind data, everyone? I have a pre-question. Go for it. What are the chances any of the three people you picked are listeners? And how much should we be embarrassed about? <laughs> okay, so here's a clue. One of them is likely to be a listener of the Turing podcast. Oh, I don't right. know how likely, but but non-negligible chance. <laughs> okay, so be okay. nice, everyone. Okay. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. be nice. <laughs> I think we'd like to point out as well that unfortunately Ed's not dressed as Silla Black to host this. No, they disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not. It's a. It's. I could. I. We could have pretended that I was. I mean, it's an audio podcast. But anyway. Anyway, let. let I'm going to introduce. We are truthful. We would yes. not. Not lie uh, to our. Yeah, we never yes, lie exactly. to our to our audience. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to introduce mystery date number one. So mystery date number one was born to a Greek Cypriot father and a Chinese Singaporean mother, and grew up in North London. A child prodigy, prodigy in chess from the age of four, your mystery date's creations have gone on to conquer more than just this game. 
Any any initial okay. reactions to mystery date number one? I'm intrigued. Intrigued. Too, okay. Yeah. Cool. All like right. It well, would be it would be fun for a, a coffee chat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Mystery mystery date number one. Yeah. Sounding good. Sounding good. Uh, so I'm going to tell you mystery dates number two's uh, potted bio. Mystery date number two recently became one of the hundred richest Germans with the value of their company, which they co-founded with their marriage partner, soaring to $21 billion. Your mystery date once said in an interview that even on the day of their wedding, they still made time for lab work. <laughs> okay, How do you okay feel about- that's wedded to their job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite as excited to go on a date with mystery. Yeah, would they even have time? Yeah, so I was going to say, they don't have time for coffee. We can just meet in the lab, I guess. We just bring Mm -hmm. the coffee to the lab. (laughs) Okay, so 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 far we're feeling a little little bit more positive about uh, Mystery Date 1's chess playing skills for a date than than Mystery Date 2's uh, love love of lab. Okay, so Mystery Date number three has acquired a lot of titles over the years. In 2011, they became a knight, but most recently they became president. They became a president. It's uh, <laughs> not the I was president. Like the president of, of president. the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's pos- okay. So mystery date number three. It's possible you may have met this mystery date. Um, I think so I know this mystery date. <laughs> you think you think you know? Don't don't reveal who you think it is yet. Okay. I have I have a very important question. Would all three of us at the same time we have to agree on the same person that we would have coffee with? No, I I, I want all of you to choose independently but okay. I, I'm going to only offer you one question of each date between the three of you. So uh, so mystery date number one, Is there, what would you like to ask about mystery date number one? Well, I think, I don't know if you guys agree, like what does he do apart from chess? Mm. Like I do like chess, but I'm not the greatest at chess. So maybe, I mean, he could teach me that, but maybe he does things, other things that I understand better. Yeah, like other sports or just other hobbies. Yeah. Other hobbies. Okay. So fortunately for you, I do remember having read an interview uh, article about this person once. And this person, I remember, does like to do a lot of coding in their spare time as well as work. And apparently sometimes enjoys listening to either classical music or drum and bass whilst coding. <laughs> oh, pretty standard how, choices yeah i wonder how different their code comes out with those two choices. <laughs> yeah. just add some edm and suddenly you have a three very hyperactive code yeah um okay so you've had your question of mystery date number one um so mystery date number two who's one of the hundred richest germans do you have a a question you'd like to ask to learn more about this person so my question is similar you know do they have any hobbies? I was I was gonna ask about what field of lab do they work on? Is it like a biology, a physics, mm-hmm. drugs? I don't know. <laughs> Anything possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to be too specific, but um certainly biology is correct out of those uh, you just mentioned. Drugs is also definitely in the right ballpark. Um and I'm gonna say there's a specific genre of i don't know if you necessarily categorize it as a drug but something that you give to people to perhaps to prevent them getting ill in the first place that this person <laughs> has uh see, has, de- has has developed uh one of those 
perhaps, mm. possibly. So not um, to get too specific. But... <laughs> <laughs> a preventative drug. <laughs> <laughs> It's like um, finding a needle in a haystack. <laughs> <laughs> and um, mystery date number three, who has a lot of titles, um, would you like to ask a question of this person? What would you like to know about them? I just want to say hi, mystery date number three, before we ask anything. <laughs> <laughs> he or she may be listening, yeah. Go on, what, 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 what would you like to know about mystery date number three? <laughs> They're a knight, and most president recently they've become a president. Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to say it's, if I give you the exact answer, it might be a bit too specific, but I'll give you an answer to that question, which is that they've yeah. become, they've become president of a British society. Okay. <laughs> Joe's nodding. She knows, she knows yeah. who, who this is. <laughs> Um, I'm clueless in all three, so that's brilliant. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so I'm going to go through each of you and, yeah, let you decide who you want to take on a date, and then, um, and then, <laughs> and then let you have a guess of uh, who who you think that person is. So, let's go with B first. Which of our mystery dates? Which of our three mystery dates would you like to go to grab a coffee with? So the first one is a coder, and I'm a coder myself, so we could at least, you know, communicate on some level. But the second one invented something cool that now I want to know more about, so I would also have questions. And also, number three is a knight. Who doesn't want to have, you know, grab a coffee with a knight? It's like, what, <laughs> yeah. what are you doing today? Grabbing a, exactly. It's like a grabbing coffee, a coffee. Or, or maybe a tankard of ale, perhaps. What? You know? See, is that, like, what, what would you do? But I think that I'm going to go with uh, mystery date number one, and I will talk about code. Okay. Um, should we, do you want to guess now or should we wait until everyone else has chosen? Let's try to, to I, I would like not to guess, but let's wait for everyone. <laughs> okay, let's wait for, let's let everyone else choose first. Uh, Rachel, who would you like to go on a date with? I am also going to go on a date with mystery guest number one. Um, I think they could teach me chess, which is always a useful skill to have. I'm not very good at it and I quite like coding, but I'm also not good at that. So they can teach me coding as well. So I feel like the most useful in terms of building my skills. <laughs> nice, nice. A good good answer. Um, Joe, who would you like to choose of the three mystery dates? So I'm, I'm going to pick number two. I think, okay. you know, work ethic sounds admirable. <laughs> yeah. Um, but only obviously if they can actually find time to go for a coffee with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, so we've, uh, we've chosen... B and, and Rachel have chosen mystery date number one. Um, can you all guess who mystery date number one might be? Anyone got any ideas? I feel like I have read articles about him or them, but I cannot, as in the biography sounds familiar, but I have no reference of name or anything. So that's not very helpful. Okay. But do you, is he, have you got any clues about who you think it might be what, or who they work no. for perhaps? <laughs> okay. Okay. Not sure. Okay, anyone else got any ideas or? No. Okay, Joe and I nodding because the <laughs> listeners can't know that we're just frantically saying yeah, no with our heads. heads. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, B and Rachel, I can reveal that you're going on a lovely non-romantic date with Demis Sasabis, CEO of DeepMind, the AI mm. company. Oh, nice. nice. Okay, cool. 
Sounds cool, right? Yeah. Yes. Good po- networking. A, po- a positive Good reaction. Mystery date. <laughs> nice. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so Jay, you chose mystery date number two. Um, do you want to have the first guess of who you think that might be? No. <laughs> I think I think he might be the CEO of a of a uh, manufacturing company that's just made some uh, vaccines. Uh huh. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's correct. That's, <laughs> um, any, that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's where you're at. Any could yeah. anyone go any more specific than that? No. Okay. Is, fair, is, fair it, is it COVID vaccines? Is that? <laughs> it is. It is COVID vaccines. I think this is a really tough one. In fairness, so the contestant number two is in fact Oslem Turecci, if I pronounce her name correctly, uh, and it's her rather than him because she is the chief medical officer of BioNTech, the company that started. She started with her husband uh, Uga Sahin, that collaborated with Pfizer on the coronavirus vaccine that many uh-huh. people are being injected with at the moment. Um, great. <laughs> a great coffee. I was going to say, Joe really is getting the connections to get the vaccine early, guys. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a massive ploy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so definitely some benefits there from uh, going from uh, yeah networking. Um, okay, so no one chose uh, contestant number three, <laughs> who is the person I thought would be most likely to listen to the podcast um oh, she's no. terrifying i'm so I, sorry i think i think joe i think joe knows who it is though um so joe this person who became a knight in 2011 and more recently a president who do you think it is is it our very own institute director adrian smith it is well done <laughs> good guess and good guess. um yeah if if you're listening adrian then um i'm really sorry that they didn't choose you i should have bigged you up more i mean you know i thought i thought knight and president wow could it no, get any the, better than that? The truth is, we had our suspicions, and there is a chance that we had had coffee in the same room. As right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point. You may have already had coffee with him, so it makes sense to choose the others. Yeah. Fair exactly. enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. On that note, that concludes Blind Data. Thank you, everyone, for playing. <laughs> um, and so we'll now move on to today's uh, guest for the Turing podcast which um, is uh, Dan Stowell. We'll introduce him momentarily. But it's it's also me. Um, B and, and Joe interviewed uh, me and Dan on some research that we did last year on solar fo- photovoltaic databases. So let's look forward to that. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Turing Podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Dan Stowell, who is a senior researcher and co-lead of the Machine Listening Lab at Queen Mary University of London, as well as a fellow of the Alan Turing Institute. Today we'll be talking to Dan about his work at Turing in collaboration with Open Climate Fix and OpenStreetMap on addressing climate change through solar panel mapping and the paper he's recently had published in Nature Scientific Data on this topic. It also happens to be research that I've been involved in personally, as you'll go on to hear. So, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Hey, Dan. Um, I think before we dive into any research, it might be good if you could tell us a bit about why solar energy is actually important, um, particularly in the UK, where we often have very little sun. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, we often hear different things in the news about which countries are doing well and which countries are doing badly at renewable energy and so on. Um, one of the great things about the UK is that we have phased out a lot of old-fashioned fossil power pretty quickly, so we've got rid of a lot of coal power. Um, and the UK, just like a lot of other countries, is increasingly relying on renewable sources. And the other thing that's often discussed in the news is, ah, but are these reliable? Are they predictable? Can we rely on them just as much as we can rely on coal or nuclear? And it is an important question. It's an important question because um, the amount of power that the, the national grid delivers to all our homes, actually that has to match exactly the the generation against the demand. So moment by moment that has to match. So if we have a lot of solar panels connected to the grid, as we do, and we don't really know exactly how many of them are going to be covered by cloud and how many of them are not going to be covered by cloud, then there's a little bit of uncertainty in there. So we, we want to be able to match exactly against the number of kettles that people have turned on in the country. But if we don't know uh, in, in, let's say, a minute or ten minutes uh, a time how much power is coming from the solar uh, part of the grid, then we need to have a bit of a backup baseline. So we need to have gas generators running at slightly below power, which, which, uh, sorry, slightly below their kind of optimal, uh, generation, which means that we can then ramp them up or down kind of, we can use them as the, uh, control to help us match supply against demand. So the point is, we need to understand our solar capacity really well because it's an increasingly large part of the mix. And the better we understand where it is and when it's generating, uh, the less we need to rely on inefficient uses of fossil power backup. In some places, it's quite easy to see how much solar you get because in Manchester is roughly zero. Uh, <laughs> it's always grey and cloudy, so so uh, I can attest to that. So I, I come from the north of England, and uh, and so yeah, I can agree with that. But. It actually, we, we did this, we've done this mapping project and it's astonishing how many, uh, solar panels and solar farms people are willing to install up and down the country. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely concentrated in the south, but it actually, yeah, it, it does relate to all of us. Um, but tell us, what are some of the challenges in estimating the total solar capacity for the country? And why is this something that wasn't already known? Yeah, this is uh, this is something that I get asked a lot because if I say we're trying to find and you know find the geolocation, let's say, of all the solar panels in the country, they say, why don't you just ask the government or uh, why don't you just ask the national grid? Um, and that's perfectly reasonable. Um, there are a few different answers to that. Like, firstly, a lot of solar power because it's uh, sort of micro generation, you know, a couple of solar panels here and a couple of solar panels there. Uh, these things, you know, they're not often integrated into some big, uh, massive database of exhaustive details of everything. Um, and even if they are, they're often kind of privacy concerns. So we don't have a big register of everyone's name against the solar panel they own. You know, there are uh, various things going on there. But the other thing is, if we want to predict how much solar is, uh, energy is being generated by the solar panel on my roof or your roof, we need to know 
the exact geolocation, let's say to within 10 meters, something like that. Um, whereas if we want to just bill someone or, or pay someone for the solar that they generate, we actually don't care if it's within 10 meters. We just, well, we'll take the postcode and that's enough. So what it means is that even though uh, in the UK kind of um, information environment, we've got quite a lot of open data and we've got quite a lot of open data about things like energy, it often is missing some of the important parts of the picture that you want if you're going to use it for these um, these new purposes. I, I think the uh, the key thing here is that we don't know exactly even what the the potential capacity of the UK's solar panels and solar farms is, right? Um, so speaking as someone who's also involved in this research, um, that was the first thing we started to look at, which was what are the um, possible sources of even knowing that information? Mm. And then, and then, as you mentioned, you've got to consider, well, what would the what would the real world um, uh, capacity of these things be, um, uh, get, given their location, given the the um, how much sunlight there's going to be, and so on. But but that that part comes later. Um, I, I think um, I'm going to ask you the next question now, which is um, based on the fact that we we don't have the good reliable information from um, the existing data sets um, that come from government and elsewhere on the solar the potential solar capacity across the country of all of these different solar panels and solar farms that different people have. Um, you, you you looked into uh, using data from OpenStreetMap. Now, can you tell us a bit about what OpenStreetMap is um, and how we were able to get information uh, on solar panels and solar farms from from there? Yeah, yeah. OpenStreetMap is this. Uh, it's one of these uh, funny things where the name is is uh, perfect, but also not perfect because it sort of tells you, okay, it's it's open, as in open data, open source, or or, or whatever. Um, and it's a map of the world. So yeah, it's it's got a massive wealth of mapping data that you might, you might use to find your own street. And it's a bit like Wikipedia, but for maps or for or for geographic data. It's not just a single map. People are, people are going to think of um, <laughs> Google Maps when you say that. So mm. I guess what what's the what's the difference there? Because everyone can go on Google Maps and see the map of the world and put in the coordinates, yeah. but. But but this is this is different from that. Well, the difference is the the, the first word open. So open means you know o- open data is not just that uh, you can access something for free, but it's also open in that we explicitly say in advance that people can do all kinds of things with this data without our permission, and that's the principle that's made Wikipedia basically the encyclopedia that the world uses and it's the same principle that's in a, a whole lot of scientific work that we do um not many people remember now that before wikipedia in let's say the 90s there were uh various sorts of electronic encyclopedia and uh these were very professionally published and people would pay a lot for a dvd rom or something like that um, and then Wikipedia came over and it was just someone who decided on the internet to just let anyone edit an encyclopedia. And what happened was that openness and crowdsource potential became how it is, the this open thing that is the encyclopedia. And 
even though you might not think that's going to happen right now with maps. Uh, I've been involved in OpenStreetMap for a long time. It used to be this crazy niche thing that people did where they ride around with a GPS receiver on their back, riding around on a bicycle trying to find the exact um, sort of latitude, longitude of various streets and things like that. Um, it's interesting that you say bicycle because, uh, yeah. you know, Google can afford to have cars going around doing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, back in the day, it was just uh, one bloke uh, uh, cycling around London. <laughs> that was how it started. But it wasn't me. No, no, it wasn't me. <laughs> Um, but it's but you know the, the the lesson from Wikipedia is that um, is that true openness that kind of respects the people contributing to it in the sense of treating them as peers as sort of equal members um, that can potentially just sort of take over and replace commercially sourced stuff uh, such as various companies produce and. Um, it's not going to replace everything. I mean, you know, Wikipedia doesn't replace everything. It doesn't replace all the academic papers in the world and all the commercial newspapers and all these things. But, um, but OpenStreetMap is really increasingly being used by a lot of commercial providers, a lot of different community projects to have geographic data for all kinds of things. So, for example, it's used by humanitarian organizations, and this is something that amazed me. In a lot of humanitarian situations, you have a... Um, well, there was, a, there was a particular crisis with the typhoon in the Philippines. This is a few years back. Um, and the first thing you think if you're going to fly a load of helicopters into a place and try and deliver aid is where are the villages, the towns, the population? Where are the roads that we can use to get supplies to these things? And you think, okay, they'll probably get some kind of government map or something. But in a place like the Philippines, they just didn't have it. The government did not have this information about where the villages were. And that's strange to us from a Western point of view, but it's really, really common. So even really, really serious things like humanitarian organizations going and delivering aid to thousands and thousands of people, they can now rely on OpenStreetMap as the, as the tool they use to get that done. Is that is that because um, because I guess anyone can edit it in the same way as Wikipedia? You're not reliant on, say, if you were using Google Maps to just wait for them to get around to covering a particular area. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's I mean, so a, a company such as Google. I mean, I, I don't particularly want to pick on Google as, as the example, so I'll try not to. But you know, a company can have uh, self-interested reasons for doing things, and that's why rich cities tend to be very well mapped um but it could also it, it can also have noble reasons for doing things or disinterested you know they can they can have a foundation which goes and does nice things um but the the benefit that we've seen in open street map is the power of crowdsourcing that that thousands and thousands and thousands of people can just get together in order to 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 fill this gap um so just to bring that back to the solar panels then how did um uh, that become was there a particular initiative or push to get the open source community to go and look for those uh, places where there are solar farms and and it's and it's also rooftop solar panels of course as well if i remember correctly um yeah so I, I, that that one's kind of interesting because if you don't know anything about you know sort of um, the uk power sector or any power sector actually it's kind of surprising you might think these massive wind farms 
So wind farms, wind farms and solar farms. <laughs> Let's talk about solar. Um, these massive solar farms are generating, you know, all of the solar power and my little solar panel on the roof isn't doing very much. But in fact, about one third of the UK's solar generation capacity is rooftop solar. There's lots of them all adding up. And so they really, really make a difference to the amount of renewable energy we have in the country. Um, yeah, so where this all started was I've been involved in uh, OpenStreetMap for a while and I do a lot of machine learning, data science, all these other things as part of my academic work and was never really involved in um, anything to do with renewable energy. Uh, and then one day uh, on Twitter, uh, someone called Jack Kelly, who's involved, who's in fact co-launched a project called Open Climate Fix, he asked out loud... Um, would it be a crazy idea to use OpenStreetMap to to build a database of all our um, the UK's power infrastructure and especially the renewable power infrastructure? And yeah, so what happened was I was, you know, I just sort of uh, responded to that and gave some ideas, but eventually it kind of snowballed and people in the OpenStreetMap UK community were kind of interested because we all like to sort of contribute useful things to the world you know whether it's professionally or in your spare time and we didn't have a map of uh, all the solar farms or all the solar panels in the country and it's something that we could just sort of step in and do so yeah the great thing is that community involvement just sort of came from that but also a little bit more formal kind of project involvement so you know we had some funding from the Turing Institute to help us do this and we had a couple of other organizations involved um, so yeah, it really just snowballed from this sort of innocent uh, question out there. To to hear um, that uh, scientific collaborations can get started on social media, especially in nowadays when um, they're probably less likely to be started spontaneously in the office. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are some really weird things that I mean, it's just completely unexpected things that that come about from this. So you know, there's. There's one person called uh, Russ Garrett who, who who created a kind of map visualization of the uh, of the power data, and he was doing it for his own purposes, and it's just a really nice map. But you know that actually sort of fed into the whole project. Uh, meanwhile, there is someone called Jerry who was doing um, a lot of local mapping in his uh, area around kind of the Coventry region, and when this whole topic came up he went back through a load of photos that he'd taken while he'd been out mapping local areas and he just happened to have all these photos where he could see solar panels that had never been spotted before so um just all these all these completely unexpected things coming together and actually um in a funny sense lockdown helped because uh there were quite a few people who during the covid lockdown didn't have much to do so they helped out by scanning through aerial imagery and, and looking for solar panels and helping us pinpoint them. <laughs> it's great to see, um, yeah, that kind of big citizen science initiative, um, <laughs> at least, and at least there's something positive coming out of uh, lockdown in that sense. <laughs> if, if someone had a solar panel on their roof, say, could they get in touch and find out whether you've mapped it or kind of what's the... You know, is there 
any way of doing that. I mean, there's lots of houseboats near me, as like an example, that have solar panels on their roofs, but obviously they move around a lot. So Yeah, that's a tricky thing. Houseboats that move around. I think this is this is one of the things that we have to think about when we think about like automatic recognition and so on. That's a bit of a complication. But that aside, yeah, uh, so anyone can go to openstreetmap.org. This is that's just the main website, but for for any kind of open street map. Um visualize it any any open street map you you go to it search for your location and and you can look at the data that's there and just like wikipedia you just click edit and you can actually go and edit it yourself so people can feel free to put their own solar panels into the map and that's that's really uh great because obviously they know a little bit more about their solar panels than uh, everyone else does i'll have to have a look i think there might be some of my buildings so i'll have to see if they've been captured um so my next question is to Ed. So Ed, you're wearing two hats today, your podcast host and you're involved in this project. Um, so can you tell me exactly what you were doing on this project? What, what, how were you involved? Yeah, so um, I'm part of the Alan Turing Institute's research engineering group. And we sort of, uh, we're, we're software engineers who work with um, different academics on projects. Uh, and I was working with Dan um at the start of this year the end of last year on this um and really it was like getting um together the first steps of this um ultimate uh, what was ultimately produced which is this data set that dan's published paper on um and it was compiling um the data that's coming in from open street maps um that dan's just been describing with um some of the information from the government's data set that we um that already existed. So we we had a look and there are, there are a few different options that we could have used of existing, you know, spreadsheets online and so on. There was this one called the Renew- Renewable Energy Planning Database, which was quite useful. And we were able to sort of cross-reference that against what we were seeing in OpenStreetMaps. Um, so I was doing some of the, the data science there in, in, in creating that data set initially. Um, but then, yeah, as, uh, as Dan mentioned, since, since, since the time when I actually initially worked on it, there's obviously a lot more that's been added to the OpenStreetMaps, um, data itself. Astonishing because we had this project, which was ended in March, 2020 and we were like, okay, now we've finished. And then the lockdown happened and so much more data came in. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. Find it better in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was um, one of the yeah. I mean, this is obviously a, a, a climate change related project, right? I mean, that that the, the whole aim is to is to of mapping solar panels is to know um, get a better estimate of the amount of energy going into the grid, which means we won't have to use as much fossil fuels. Um, but a lot of the climate related uh, climate change related projects um, that people would uh, again. You know, being a being a scientist, our, our chosen social media appears to be Twitter. And the things I was seeing tweeted from people who are working on climate change stuff at the start of lockdown was like, "Oh wow, this is an amazing time to create to collect data with uh, less traffic." And um, you know, there are all of these. It was like a natural experiment for a lot of things. Um, and I guess you know, in this case, you know, the solar panels aren't aren't, aren't moving around or changing. But yeah, the the, the difference was that. People had more time on their hands to uh, to to bother doing these sorts of things. I wonder. I wonder if the you know edit rate of Wikipedia spiked as well. I don't know. We'd we'd have to we'd have to ask someone who knows about that. <laughs> like scientists back in the beginning of the lockdown, like, yep, 
I'm technically breaking the rules, but this is for work. I'm walking two hours away from home, but I have a camera <laughs> and I'm spotting things and the police can do anything. All the rebellion, the secret scientific rebellion. Um, I have a question though. Why can't the government data sources you use be relied upon as a, a gold standard? Because that's what you would expect, right? The government would get, would have the proper uh, gold standards for things like location and the capacity of the solar farms. Yeah, so the government gold standards, I mean, the, the government does have uh, some good data and they have processes in place to get this data. There are, there are quite a few different reasons why... Um, it isn't quite obviously the gold standard that we might think, uh, and I'll, I'll try and think of the most important ones rather than boring you with all of them. <laughs> but one thing is that the the way that uh, the government's uh, say renewable power policies have changed over the years. So it was um, there was the end of the original kind of feed-in tariff, which was a, a couple of years ago, and what happened was the feed-in tariff, which pays people for producing renewable energy. That was the project that collected for the government data about new uh, solar uh, domestic solar panels going online, um, and then when the when that scheme finished, that sort of data collection finished. So there's a bit of a gap there. The other thing is this this main thing that I, I, I mentioned about um, location, because we need pretty exact locations, and um, the the main thing that does get gathered is sort of postcode type locations and in a city a postcode can be quite precise but in the countryside a postcode is not precise because you know they, they sort of cover a similar amount of houses essentially and so in the po in the countryside a postcode can be can cover a massive range um also the postcode isn't exactly where the solar panels are. We found this one, which this example, which is in the we put it into the research paper because it's quite dramatic. Which is this very big um, Ministry of Defence site, uh, which is uh, it's a big site with kind of uh, I think a decommissioned airfield on it. So what they put on the decommissioned airfield was a whole load of solar panels. This is obviously a really big geographical area um, but the according to the government the location of this solar panel was basically at the door to the Ministry of Defence site not on the airfield which is more than a kilometre away so you know if, if, if the government's data was you know uh, could be as uh, over a kilometre wrong then it's not going to be ideal for predicting which clouds are going to drift over your solar panels right and that's i think that's a an important thing to highlight here why we're you know why are we so concerned about location rather than just um knowing how much energy these solar farms are going to produce but it's because the next stage of the research is um related to cloud cover right yeah absolutely yeah, that's that's something that uh, Jack Kelly, this, who, who uh, sort of started the ball rolling, is um, is working on in his Open Climate Fix uh, thing. That is all about using this data together with predictions of cloud cover to then say, for let's let's imagine for every single solar panel in the UK, we're going to predict one hour in advance if it's going to be covered or not covered 
and essentially how much it's going to be generating. Right. Yeah. But the yeah the, the the two things we've highlighted here the location and the uh, well just knowing the sort of maximum capacity of each solar farm or, or solar panel are obviously going to be prerequisites to to doing anything anything further any you know in in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Comfortable with government information right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to mention one thing actually, which is uh, based, uh, a lot about the the work that Ed was doing on the data, which is the relatively unglamorous side of like data science in sort of taking different data sets and smooshing them together. Because you know we we can have this OpenStreetMap stuff. It didn't and feel can, glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, you got the OpenStreetMap data in one hand, and you got some government data in the other hand, and you're like, okay, we'll just put these two together. Um, but especially given what I've just said, which is that things might be the same object even though they're a kilometer apart. Together with the fact that some of the d- data sets that we are using don't have like official identifiers for each item, uh, it's actually really tricky. So you've got this this uh, what's often called a, a matching problem in, uh, in in data science. You know, we we want to sort of take these things and connect them together without so to eliminate duplicates, but also to try not to miss anything. Uh, and so a lot of what Ed was doing and what the Turing project was all about was taking multiple data sources and combining them together and trying to, you know, not do it by hand, but to come up with uh, rules and database processes that would let us actually um, join things up in a way that meant we wouldn't come back to it three months later and go, oh no, now we have to do it all over again. Yeah, just to elaborate on that a bit, and it sort of answers... B's question a bit about why the government source data set can't be used as gold standard and also to point out why doing data science with real world data is so difficult I'll, I'll give an example which was just like one of the entries in the in the the government data we mentioned the renewable uh, energy planning database was like uh, a, a solar panel scheme as opposed to a particular solar farm and then what that mapped onto in the open street maps as we could see was um it it, it wasn't it, it was a whole sort of area where there were lots of rooftops with solar panels who were perhaps under this scheme but the the government data set was not in any way like recording how many of them there were or whether they were all the same capacity each or what the total capacity was um and so yeah that bringing in this completely outside data source and trying to link it on on the uh, geolocation, which is of course what we had to use, um, you know, it, it it was a challenge. And that this is the kind of real world stuff you do with data science. But um, yeah, I think I think hopefully the and um, you know when when our listeners if, if they want to check out the paper and see what the the eventual data set uh, looks like in the end. It's beautiful. Um, it, it works out mm. for the best. It's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> no bias here yeah. at all. <laughs> Same, no bias. <laughs> so I suppose, yeah, so my next question is, um, you mentioned in the research paper that you estimate that the UK solar capacity could be as high as 16 gigawatts. How confident are you in this, Dan? <laughs> and what do you think this means for the UK's energy policy? I mean, the government mm. released its 10-point plan last week. Um, it talked a lot about renewable energy, I suppose, in the sense of offshore wind farms. 
Um, but yeah, I suppose I'm quite interested in this. Yeah. Well, on the the ten point plan, I don't I, I don't really have much to say about that because it doesn't. I think, as far as I'm aware, it doesn't really affect the solar side of things very much. I mean, the best news I think from recent things is that it seems that onshore wind farms are now um, back in favour with, with with the government because that's really important and the 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 discontinued support of that was was a big problem. So. Um, but in terms of the, the 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 total number of gigawatts of solar power, and it, it's really interesting because my background is not in power, and so I was surprised as surprised as anyone else by some of these things that you come in and you say, okay, how much solar capacity does the UK have? And the government says, well, we've got a couple of guesses, <laughs> and and you, you what? <laughs> okay, I'll ask the national grid, and the national grid are like, well, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, there are various different sources of estimates, and there are some there are some definite things like the the number of big solar farms in the country. That's quite you know very confident about what is actually connected and producing. Um, but for example, if we've got all these solar panels on people's roofs, some of them haven't been connected yet. Some of them might have broken. So there's all kinds of sources of uncertainty. And um, what we have in the paper is that uh, it's about 13 gigawatts that's quite confidently known. And the topping up to 16 gigawatts is by inferring capacity for bits and pieces that we're not quite sure about. So there's definitely a kind of margin of error in our own estimates. And that's absolutely um, sure. Uh, I think we are, there is, um, I'm afraid I can't remember which government department right now, but the, I think it might be base, uh, there's some government estimates being produced by government data scientists, and those are produced from similar sorts of data as we have, you know, the access, the, the, the listings of uh, solar farms and so on. So, estimates vary. And they vary between, let's say, 12 and 16 and, uh, and things like that. The other thing that you really have to bear in mind is that solar power and a lot of renewable energy are really on this upward curve at the moment. So if you want to know how much solar power is installed, do you mean right now? Do you mean a year ago? Do you mean two years ago? Because the differences between those are actually massive. Um, because it's not exactly exponential, but you can think of it a bit like an exponential uh, growth, which means all of the stuff that's more recently come online is all the big stuff. <laughs> so um, you have the, you have this dual problem of inherent uncertainty and quite quickly going out of date. Now that's another reason why it's quite good to do this kind of crowdsourced thing where people can add new data as and when. I'm going to say that definitely sounds like we, we were at an advantage here using the uh, OpenStreetMaps data because that is, as you said, something that can be continuously updated. Um, and so I, I was going to ask a question. You kind of answered this earlier, but um, uh, what is the sort of benefit of this data set it being open? So the you, you've published um, this in Nature Scientific Data, um, and it's it's called a harmonised high coverage open data set of solar photo photovoltaic installations in the UK, um, and so of course as well as it being a published paper, the 
the the data set is as you mentioned uh open for people to use and repurpose uh presumably in in whatever way they see fit so what so how, yeah how exactly how open is that is that is that as open as i'm suggesting it is it is it's um it's it's under a license which is it basically open street map has this open uh data license and it's under the same open license as that and it's not um it's not quite the same as a creative commons license but it's extremely similar and it has this 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 basic similar level of um openness that you can almost do anything you like as long as you give proper credit i mean there's a, there's a lot more to it than that but you know that that's the headline and um Anyone who uses it got to got to credit us. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, sort of, yeah. So uh, the, the the thing is, uh, one of the things that I I I think a lot of people are often surprised about is that you can do commercial work with this, and this is really important, right, especially right. especially if we're dealing with the power sector, right? It's not that you can do stuff with it that you're not allowed to make money. It's it's really open, right? You can do you can National Grid or uh, EDF Energy anyone can can make use of this data, and uh, or even a new startup. And one of the things that I really like about this open approach is that people can come up with things that we have no idea about in advance. Mm. You know, so yeah. we wanted to do this in order to um, predict cloud cover. We've talked about this, but. Um, but because this is basically just a geographic data set of solar power, people can do all kinds of things. They can look at, for example, socioeconomic factors. Does the type of housing or the type of um, local government influence what's going on in solar deployment? Does the type of housing stock affect it? There are, there, that's a sort of um, research thing that people might want to do in on the commercial side, you might have a startup that tries to target different areas of the country to try and go and sell solar panels, and you want to know, like, well, how much is there already? So all these different things which are completely unrelated to our um, primary mission, you know, we're enabling things to do, enabling all sorts of people to do things we haven't thought of, and that's that, that's my favourite side of it. Sort of part of what we were trying to achieve was that um, when new data came in, um, whether it's from a new government data set or a new a batch of OpenStreetMaps data, that the method could then just be rerun and the the, gen, the the combined data set just regenerated. So now that it's been published, um, will, will that still be process still be ongoing as people keep adding stuff? I think that's a really interesting sort of um, strategic question, and I. I, I so I think there are two you can sort of treat it in two different ways. One is that yes, it will you can you can continuously update it because the methods um and the source code and so on, that's all that's all open and online and we can rerun it, you can rerun it, anyone can. Um so the method is there and you rerun it whenever you need the freshest data. Uh but the other side of it is that we put quite a lot of effort into validating and sort of manually inspecting to make sure that nothing had gone wrong. And now if you're going to do something like um, providing power to an entire nation, you might want to validate your data a little bit, right? You might want to just sort of check things through rather than just slurping in new data um, unquestioningly. 
there are a few different things you can do. I mean, you can put automatic checks in to try and add some sort of automatic validation, but perhaps the best approach going forward is if we, or if someone else, does a sort of manual refresh of the data once a year or once every six months or something, so that there is a stable and sort of um, a method that's a, it's not a moving target. You know, if if we, if we say now that we are this much confident that the data is um, you know very dependable, and then all of a sudden a whole new load of data comes in from some random people we've never met, mm, for a lot of certainly in the in the power sector, for a lot of applications, people are going to be a little bit dubious. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is more um, real world data science problems here, isn't it? I mean, it's it'd be nice to think that we could just make this amazing method that um, you know accounts for any oddities in the new data that might come in, and that you know it could automatically up create new versions of the data set. But you know, when it's something that, regardless whether whether it's someone editing OpenStreetMaps, you know, like a person editing Wikipedia, you know, they might um, edit in such a way that's different from other users or, you know, whether it's the input data set being government uh, data set or spreadsheets, you know, there might be uh, rows of data that have characters in we didn't expect or something. So, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's always going to be, uh, you know, manual steps to data science as well as aut automated steps simulator thing there's this um this great thing there's a, there's a microsoft flight simulator and they use open street map data to build this kind of map of the world with 3d buildings and so on and there was this there's this lovely example in the past year where um someone had accidentally put into open street map a building which had something like sixty thousand floors Right, so so the, the height of the building was like 60,000 floors or something like that. So if you fly around Australia, I think, in, in Microsoft uh, Flight Simulator, you could see this ridiculously large building. And, um, of course, Microsoft is sort of ingesting the OpenStreetMap data and processing it in all sorts of ways, and there's definitely, like, some validation and whatever, whatever. Um, but they just didn't think of this particular corner case, and so that came yeah, through right. into the Flight Simulator. <laughs> And so you see really visually and and thankfully in a safe way, but you get to see kind of the impact of um, uh, of, of ingesting data from uh, third-party sources, yeah. I was just thinking that with a, a building that high, you would have to have like sittings in the, in the lifts and possibly some <laughs> motion sickness tablets for people. <laughs> yeah. You're like... <laughs> You, you might oh. need you might need to have kind of uh, yeah. I was gonna say it's like yeah. oh I'm uh, I'm I'm downstairs. I'll take two hours to arrive. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me just correct my watch for the different rel relativistic effects. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. So how you already told us a little bit about how this data set can be used in the future, but what can you tell us about anything that you? Uh, are you going to be doing, you know, ongoing parts of the research by yourself or your collaborators? Mm. Yeah, um, I, well, so so I, I'll start with the big picture. You know, one of, one of the reasons that I love doing this project is that um, we get to take some of our skills in data science, machine learning and things like that and use them for uh, what is obviously a, a good thing, trying to, to help uh, with the climate crisis. 
And another part of, uh, in fact, a big part of my work is about uh, animal monitoring and biodiversity. And I think, although it's very different data, um, I'm really pleased that I get to be able to use, you know, data science skills to be to be able to help with both the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. So that's that's the big picture. Um, in the uh, in the more immediate case, we are we're taking this data that we've got about solar panels, and we want to use that um, partly to train machine learning that can spot solar panels. Okay, so now that we've got um, the sort of the ground truth of some people, um, thousands of people have annotated uh, solar panels for us. We can combine that with aerial imagery or even street level imagery and use that to help uh, train machine learning to detect things. So the great thing about that is if, if we train machine learning to do that, then we can help to sort of finish off the, the ones that we've missed in the UK. But ideally, we can also use that to, it's not trivial, but we could do that to do it for the entire planet. You know, we've just done the UK in this project, but, you know, the, the big goal is let's try and uh, map all the solar panels on the planet and then together with, you know, meteorological data and so on, for large countries, whether it's China, USA, India, all of these countries should be able to benefit from being able to, you know, predict uh, to at fine resolution their solar um uh, solar generation, and you know, if the if the goal of this project is measured in carbon, uh, sorry, tons of carbon dioxide equivalent reduction, there's a certain amount we achieve by reducing um, emissions in the UK. But if someone in the USA or someone in India takes our method and applies it, you know, that's so much more impact potential. And so. Um, we're really interested to talk to people who want to kind of uh, reproduce the work in, in different countries or take it forwards. Arms there, Dan. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's really fascinating. Uh, I Just to sort of reiterate what you, what you said there, um, of, of course you could um, get this to apply in other countries by by getting more people to edit open street maps in other countries but what you're suggesting is that there could be a, a um a way that requires requires a lot less human effort which is to use the fact that you've already got this um labeled data set of different kinds of solar panels and solar farms feed that into a machine learning algorithm and which could then um identify from other satellite imagery i guess it would be satellite imagery um what the yeah what the solar panels and solar farms are in other areas outside of the uk um and that could be i mean i think i i guess i don't know if um when it comes to satellite imagery would that be would you would you then have to use open street maps again or could you then use well, i guess any satellite imagery um I don't know what the answer is for the whole planet because different solutions might apply in different places. Um, by default, we use satellite imagery, but um, for example, in the UK, 
there's a company, uh, well, there are a few different companies, but one that we're working with is called Blue Sky, and they do aerial, uh, so aer- imagery taken from aeroplanes. So they, they fly planes, and so obviously that's closer to the Earth and, and can be um, uh, in higher resolution, so you can gather high-resolution data that way. You can also imagine, obviously, that we might think about drones and other whizzy things. Um, but yes, th- things such as uh, aerial imagery taken from planes or perhaps from uh, satellites uh, could be the source of this, but OpenStreetMap itself doesn't have... Um, aerial imagery. Uh, we're right, always relying on uh, images from other providers. Okay, but so I, I, I guess I mean again to use the example of Google Maps that there's at least there's at least one um, example of where there's you know satellite imagery coverage of of pretty much the entire world. Um, but there, I'm sure there are many other data sets as well. Perhaps I mean, okay. not so proprietary. <laughs> I, I, I want to tell you one thing, and this is this is certain. This is important for people like us who um, are. Uh, I think most of us living in um, big, rich cities in the rich world. If you go to so the big, rich cities actually get a lot of um, extra imagery taken at extra resolution and more often. So they're higher resolution and more up to date. Even if you go to the countryside in our own countries, let alone go to a, a poorer country, you'll find that um, a source such as uh, Google Maps, which is which is using their own data but also bringing in imagery from other different providers, you'll find that what seems to be the same source has high quality and high recency in some places and low quality and low recency in other places. So the picture is really mixed, and um, I don't, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the situation is across the planet, but it, it, it does depend on different priorities. Are you suggesting actually then that because of that inconsistency in different areas, that kind of data might not be ideal for um, a, a, an algorithm that's trained to <laughs> identify ah, based yeah. on a well, certain now, type of image? Now here's the thing, right? So we uh, we work on machine learning and. Um, to, so to do machine vision where you go, okay, here's a data set, now do some machine vision. You know, you can kind of, people have their ways of doing it, but um, machine learning academics might want an interesting challenge to solve that is, you know, a, a research question. So now here's the research question. We give you a load of data about UK uh, uh, solar panels with images taken from a plane flying over uh, the UK. Now, Let's try and solve that problem for India, where we've got imagery taken from a satellite, so very different resolution, very different landscape. This is um, a very, very different kind of, um, uh, like, the the problems involved in sort of training a a detector in one place and applying it in another place. It's a massive problem, and it's kind of, um, it's talked about in machine learning, but, like, here's a great example of where you could solve or at least work on these problems while also uh, solving something that's great for humanity. That's that's another call to arms. So if there's any <laughs> uh, machine learning researchers listening, then uh, here you go. There's a there's another data set. Get get, get stuck in. <laughs> um, Dan, thanks thanks very much for um, joining us on the on the podcast today. Um, it's been fascinating to to hear about you know. Uh, projects well i i already knew about it personally myself but it's been fascinating to uh to learn more about the kind of stuff that's been doing being done in data science um to meet the climate crisis 
Um, I'm going to ask you a bonus question, which is all about that very topic. And, um, uh, you know, feel free to, to answer this in, in whatever way you, you see fit. Uh, but the, the question is, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is we're pretty much doomed, and 10 is we've got the situation fully under control, um, how would you rate our global society's preparedness for climate change? And, you know, you can answer that both from a technological <laughs> or societal perspective. <laughs> that's uh, a question I didn't particularly see coming. <laughs> wow, that's a big one. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, I've got to sort of uh, say up front that, you know, I don't think I'm the person to answer that question. <laughs> but, you know, we, we can all make our own sort of educated um, guesses about these things. You know, I, 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 I've, I've worked on one corner of the problem and I don't really have the... Um, the overall solution. Um, it's incredibly hard to think of a, a, a something I can, some way that I can answer that that's useful. I think. Um, well, we we know that there's there've been a, a a whole load of problems in uh, sort of collect in in galvanizing the collective action and. Um, sp- Turning the ship has been incredibly slow, and that's really um, held things back. But um, the, the, what's inspiring is that people with lots of different backgrounds have sort of come in and, and worked on these from different angles. So although we don't spend as much money on climate change as we do on... Uh, sorry, let's say, although we don't spend as much money for AI for climate change as we do on AI for defence... You know, um, we are improving in, in in those regards, and I think, in a funny sort of a sense, there's there's this kind of crowdsourced response where, you know, whatever is coming top down from government to solve climate change is doing something, but really there's bottom up, which is from individual citizens, people starting their own business, people sort of changing their career a little bit and trying to do something slightly different or at least contribute in some way. You know, it's it's clear that ev- uh, the majority of people know that um, you know this is serious and it's kind of all hands on deck and we're all having a go at it. I've no idea how to answer your question about the scale of one to ten. <laughs> I really don't. Um, but I, I think you're you're experiencing a bit of uh, uh, maybe it's Dunning Kruger effect. Is it Dunning Kruger <laughs> where, where yes. you know where because you're a, a researcher, you you know how much you don't know. And uh, you're not confident to make uh, a big cl- any big claims, which is probably a very good thing, really. But <laughs> but I think I think what, what you're what you're getting at there is is really important, which is that there's there's potentially quite a lot of work that could be done in AI or data science for climate work, and such as yours. There was this um, a comment from Jack Kelly a little while ago about whether more research was needed, and so 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 there's there's this thing you hear sometimes, which is that. Um, more research is not needed. We have all the solutions. We just need to implement them. Um, and that's true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what Jack's response was is that we need a heck of a lot of research in how to do the implementation. Right. Um, so in, in a way, it's a kind of a question of definitions. But we don't need blue skies research into new forms of silicon that are going to you know do crazy things. I mean, we need a little bit of that research, but we don't need to plunge all of society's resources into uh, crazy blue skies things. What we do need to plunge all of society's resources into is 
the engineering and sort of working the solutions all the way through to implementation. And that involves academics and business and all kinds of people, especially the power industry and all these other things. I, I think your uh, research here is a really good example of that because it's like we're not saying, oh, let's put loads of money into nuclear fusion and hope for the best. It's like saying, okay, well, we, we've identified that already that the solar energy is clearly increasingly, almost exponentially, you said. Um, so maybe we should try and keep keep tabs on exactly what's going on and where it is. <laughs> I think... I speak in, in the name of everyone that we're happy that you didn't instantly respond that we're all doomed. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> I think everyone is, is quite happy that there is some questions and not just the bleak um, end of 2020. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, there's certainly going to be some pain because we know, you know, we know that we've missed various climate targets and so on. And uh, let's not end the, the conversation on the subject of the pain. But we but we know that humanity models through in various ways. <laughs> and, and, and you can see some of that happening in what we've discussed. Absolutely. Uh that's a that's a relative a relatively positive note to to end on there so <laughs> uh, Dan thanks again very much for coming on the podcast um before we let you go um where can people find out more about your work and do you have social media that people can follow yeah yep absolutely so if you just search for my name dan stowell on twitter that's where i post a few things but um I, and my website is mcld.co.uk which is a strange domain name so just just google for me that's fine uh, it's openstreetmap.org if I remember correctly to if people want to get involved there map.org yeah that openstreetmap.org is the place to go if you're interested in geographic data and mapping in general I would definitely encourage anyone interested in the climate angle to go to openclimatefix.org so this is the non-profit that I've talked about that is sort of trying to do all this work and, and they've got various projects on the go and you know various ways that people can get involved so openclimatefix.org is a good place to look we'll leave it there dan stower thanks very much for coming on that was fascinating thank you great to talk to you thanks if you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show a guest recommendation or a burning question email podcast at cheering.ac.uk The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamandsun.bandcamp.com.